When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> and they said, it's a ghost. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. I know that my Bible says, it is I. But it's ego me. it's that phrase that he used when he said, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And he just said simply, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. He is the great I am. And he hasn't abandoned you. He knows where you're at. And he says, don't be afraid. Welcome to Abide in the Word with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Scott brings a message titled, It Is I. Do not be afraid. We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. Psalm 2, when the nations are in an uproar. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. Sounds like it was written today, doesn't it? And then the second stanza of the psalm, the one in heaven speaks. And he is not concerned in the sense of wringing his hands about what's going on down here on earth. He's not threatened by man's turmoil. And so the second psalm, the father speaks and he says, as for me, I have installed my king. Okay. Jesus is king. He will be inaugurated, if you will. He will be installed. He won't be elected, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. God says, in fact, I have installed him. And there's this sense in the Bible in which he is king, and it's already true, but we're waiting for the day when he actually reigns on the throne in Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus said repeatedly, I'm coming back. Well, anyway, having said all that, maybe I can simplify what I just said. I was reading my kids, and I wrote it down, because this is when they were little, and I'm going to read it to my grandkids, you know, someday. But I was reading my kids when they were little, this account out of John 6, out of this little story Bible with pictures, you know, and they'd put it into poetry. And here's what John says in relation to the people coming and wanting to make him king. And Jesus said, <laughs> realizing that he stepped out and went up to the mountain by himself. Here's what the little children's poem said. And I thought, maybe I need it simplified like that, but I, I liked it. Here's what it said. Hooray, hooray, the people cried. Let's make Jesus king. He will give us all we want, and we will have everything. But Jesus turned away. Jesus turned and walked away. He wanted no such thing. And I thought, well said. And my six-year-old could understand it. Okay, so that was their response. Jesus turned away, and immediately, back in our text... He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. He compelled them. That word is often translated compelled. He made them. He said, get into the boat. And he told them, he commanded them. Uh, actually, it's the same term translated when Paul confesses later on. I used to try, he told King Agrippa, I used to try to force people to blaspheme Christ. That's the word, force. Okay? compel. And Jesus said he forced them to get into the boat. And because remember how this scene opened last week, we saw things were so busy, they didn't even have time for a meal. And so he was trying to get away. They brought him the news of John the Baptist being beheaded. 
And he tried to withdraw, and the people followed him. And rather than being irritated or upset, he continued to meet their needs. Now, after after he's fed them, he tells the disciples to get into the boat. And after he sent the multitudes away, look at verse 23, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. He finally gets the little bit of retreat that he was looking for earlier. And as I said, he is God and he is man. And you and I need times apart. We need times in prayer. We need times just away from the to-do list and the emails and the tasks and things that are on our schedule. And Jesus got it. But notice it was evening and... uh, He was there alone. By the way, late night can be a profitable time. (laughs) Maybe tonight, instead of just turning the TV on, you know, you get some time away. Get up on the mountain, so to speak, and pray and listen to God. I will say, you know, most of the time, my best times are in the morning. We're in the middle of a week of prayer right now in in my congregation where I worship and where I pastor, actually. And we've just designated the week a week of prayer. And we've been having some great times in the mornings uh, at 6.30. And Monday morning, just two days ago, my wife and I were praying with a school teacher. There were several of us at this table. And we were praying. Uh, and at the end of the prayer time, she got up to head off to her classroom, you know, to go face her day with school kids. I think she, I think it's a fifth grade teacher maybe. But my wife said, so you go right from here to, to work, huh? And she said, Oh, yeah, she said, I, but I so enjoy this time, and we had really enjoyed the prayer time. And she says, like my grandma said, and when somebody quotes their grandma, I always listen up, you know. And she says, like my grandma said, she said, an ounce of morning is worth a pound of afternoon. <laughs> and I immediately said, ooh, I like that. She said, by the time, by the afternoon, by the time school's out, she said, I'm just like this. And I, I'm not a school teacher, but I can imagine the drain, you know, of, and you know the same thing, don't you? And so I say, get some time with the Lord, and maybe the best time is in the morning, but if you can't get it till evening, some of my best times, actually, I'll have to say, even though I prefer the morning, some of my best times as I look over the times with Christ are late at night. You can put a pot of coffee on and open your Bible and regroup and... Uh, Get some good time. Well, Jesus, it was late, but he sent them away, and he went up to the mountain to prayer to pray, and uh, he was there alone. And by the way, verse 24, the boat where the disciples were was already many stadia away from the land. Uh, John tells us about three or four miles out into the water. So it was a long ways out there, and... Uh, It was being battered, look at verse 24, by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Can I just suggest that uh, this whole scene is a good picture of uh, this whole age? Where is Jesus? He's up on the mountain, if you will. He He always lives. 
the Bible says, to make intercession for us. He's at the right hand of God. He is up there interceding for you if you're a Christian. If you've put your faith in Christ, he's praying for you. He always lives to pray for us. Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34. Who would bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God praying for us. Jesus is up on the mountain praying. Where are the disciples? Well, they're down in this sea, which is turning into a storm. And actually, circumstances, notice verse 24, they were being battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Conditions were not favorable, but contrary. Um, maybe that's the way you feel right now. Uh, battered, tormented. That's, this word is sometimes translated that way. In fact, it was of Lot in Second Peter 2 verse 8. Lot, it says, was his righteous soul was tormented as he saw what was going on in Sodom. Because Lot knew Christ. I should put it this way. He was an Old Testament believer. He knew God. He really was, you know, righteous by faith, like Old Testament believers, just like you and I today. But he was tormented by what was going on in the city. The difference for Lot, by the way, Lot really shouldn't have been there to begin with. Sometimes we're in situations that we shouldn't be in to begin with, but we're there anyway. Anyway, he was tormented. These guys are being tormented by the waves, if you will, battered by contrary winds. We do live, I'll, I'll tell you right now, we live today, Jesus said. He didn't say this age would be smooth sailing. He said... It's a crooked and perverse generation we live in. So I'm not surprised that the media lies. And I'm not surprised that the government authorities lie. And that the candidates lie. And that there's a lot of chaos. And people sometimes say, man, it's so messed up. And they use that as an excuse to distrust God. Actually, I say, <laughs> this is what God described we would see in a sinful World. Well, verse 25 is about the fourth watch of the night. In other words, a long grind into the night. The first watch, they divided the night into four watches from dusk to nine, first watch, nine to midnight, second, midnight to three, third watch. So three o'clock in the morning till six, till dawn, basically, would have been the fourth watch. And as the long night wore on, Mark tells us, that they were straining at the oars. They were trying to row against the wind and the storm was real and they were straining against the wind. And maybe you, uh, maybe you feel that way in your life. You think, man, I thought this Christian life and you're finding that it's hard work and it's not going so well and circumstances are pushing you the way you don't want to go. Uh, let me just say, Jesus sees and he prays. You're never, ever alone. He knows where you're at. He knows what's going on in your office or your marriage or with your kids or in your business or in that stuff you've never told anybody that's just messing up your peace in your heart. He knows all about it, and he is up there on the mountain praying. And in the fourth watch of the night, 
verse 25, he came to them walking upon the sea. I think I can, I don't think I'm being fanciful when I say, you and I are in a world that's contrary to us. Jesus is up there praying, and he is coming. Scott, do you really believe that? Yes, I do. He said that repeatedly. It is not far-fetched or, what's the word I want, fanatical to say he's coming back. The Bible indicates as sure as he came the first time, he's coming back. And he sees our situation. And in the meantime, he didn't promise us comfort and safety uh, or favorable conditions. And now he comes to them. Notice, now let's just look at this scene because it's very real. They're straining at the oars and he's coming in the middle of this storm, verse 25, walking upon the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> and they said, it's a ghost. And I've actually heard uh, preachers kind of say, oh, these superstitious first century guys, you know, they thought it was a ghost. What would you think <laughs> if you saw Jesus walking to you on the water? I, uh, I think I'd do what they did. They cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. Immediately, he said, don't be afraid, I am. I know that my Bible says it is I, you know, but it's ego a me. It's that phrase that he used when he said, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And he just said simply, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. And I'll tell you what, I don't care what you and I are going through. We need to hear this. Don't be afraid. He is the great I am. And he hasn't abandoned you. He knows where you're at. And he says, don't be afraid. John was blown away in the first chapter of Revelation, and he fell at the feet of the resurrected Christ like a dead man, and Jesus said, don't be afraid. I'm the living one. I was dead, and I'm alive forevermore. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, in fact, do this. We don't have the time right now, but take your New Testament and watch for that little phrase, don't be afraid. Uh, it's not merely kind of the cliche and you know of a politician saying the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. No, there's lots of things we ought to fear, I suppose. But I don't have to be afraid when I know who's in charge and who's on my side and who has promised to never leave me or forsake me. So uh, Peter, <laughs> verse 28, answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command to me to come to you on the water. Now, some uh, fault Peter here, you know, and it is Peter-like, isn't it? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come. There's plenty to fault Peter for, but I wouldn't fault him for this one. I and mean, he puts his foot in his mouth every now and then. 
But this time he just says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Wow. He walked on water. But seeing the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. This was written for our instruction. Lord, if it's you, command. Because I think Peter was starting to realize he is the Lord. I ought to do what he says, and I need his word on it. He said, if it's you, command. And the Lord said, come. And Peter obeyed the word of God. He came, and his eyes were on Jesus, and he could walk on water. But seeing the wind, he took his eyes off Jesus, and he started to look at what? The wind, the circumstances. What am I doing out here? And he took his eyes off the Lord. Now, the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. I find that it's a daily battle to keep my eyes on Christ And what I tend to do is I look at the wind and the waves and the circumstances. And the quickest way to short-circuit God's power in your life, in my life, is to get my eyes off Christ. Uh, There's no power in Peter. And he gets his eyes on the wind and he goes down quick. Uh, The quickest way to bring failure and fear is to get your eyes off Jesus. I'm facing some things right now just like you are. And as I was looking at this scene this morning, it was a great encouragement to me to get my eyes back on the Lord. I told you it's a week of prayer at our church, you know, and the guy that was leading the prayer time as we gathered in the lobby this morning, uh, we sang a song uh, that start, the first song of the of the praise song was... Uh, He's the high king of heaven. I think, you know, high king of heaven. Be thou my vision. It was that old one, really, when I think about it. And, we, and as we turned to pray, we just said, high king of heaven. Boy, I get my eyes on the fact that he's the king of heaven, and I'll be okay. But I take him off, put him on the wind, and I'll be quickly going down. But I love his prayer, verse 30. Lord, save me. Shortest prayer Peter ever prayed, perhaps. Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus did. He stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter had faith. He didn't have enough faith to keep his eyes on the Lord. He needs his faith to grow. But the Lord just says he grabbed him and saved him. And when they got into the boat... Did you notice that there, verse 32? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. It was as if the Lord allowed a storm. He's in charge of the weather. It was as if he allowed this storm and the wind kept blowing until it had accomplished what the Lord wanted it to. And when the work of the storm was over, when it had served its purpose... It stopped. I don't think, in fact, 
I'll put it this way. I read in the Bible that the one who controls the winds and the waves, he even controls the storms. And if that's true in the weather, it's also true in the various storms of my life. And he can use, and he promised to use, every storm, every circumstance, the ones I give thanks for and the ones that I say, why this? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so I was going to say most storms are controlled by God. But, you know, I'm going to say all storms. I've got God's word on it. And he'll use them. So things that you and I may not want or desire, he can use them in our lives. And... Uh, and he will. And immediately the wind stopped. And John tells us, by the way, another detail. It's kind of fun because we have four accounts and the Holy Spirit gave different details. John says, immediately after the wind stopped, they were at the shore. Now, John also said they were out there three or four miles. So God accomplished his purpose and intervened and brought them to the other side, and they, look at verse 33, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. If you're just here uh, kind of looking into Christianity, I say, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I will tell you, they worshipped this man, Jesus. I worship him. The Bible warns us not to worship anyone but the Lord God. Sometimes the cultists come to my door and they tell me they're going to tell me about Jesus. And I just simply, sometimes I'll just tell them, I say, you know, I worship Jesus Christ. Do you? I ask you that today. Do you? I'd never worship Donald Trump, nor Barack Obama, nor George Washington, nor Barry Bonds, nor Willie Mays. Well, maybe Willie Mays. <laughs> no, no, no. No. Meganointo. Don't you ever worship any man. The angel, when John was overwhelmed, when he'd seen this great revelation, he fell to worship the angel, and the angel said, get up. Get up. I'm a fellow servant. Worship God. And yet Jesus, he's always receiving worship. And he doesn't say, stop it. He says, that's good, Thomas. When Thomas said, my Lord and my God, you've worshiped me because you've seen. Blessed are those people in Portland who've never seen and yet believe. been listening to Abide in the Word with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, It Is I, Do Not Be Afraid, a message from our study of the Gospel of Matthew. If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to AbideInTheWord.us. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. 
Something we've been making available as a thank you gift for our listeners are USB flash drives loaded with Bible teaching series in their entirety. So currently, we're offering the entire teaching of the Gospel of Matthew. That's 109 full-length messages, over 50 hours of clear, Christ-centered Bible teaching on this important introductory book of the New Testament. We'd like to make these teachings available to you, our listeners. Just make your request, along with your gift of any size, to the ministry of Abide in the Word. You can do that during regular business hours by calling 503-524-7000 or mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. You can simply click on Contact Us at AbideInTheWord.us anytime. We'd love to put one of these valuable resources in your hands. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. Christian, you've come to Christ. Don't start to think that the Christian life is a matter of do's and don'ts and not touching this and not touching that. Jesus says, out of the mouth, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and that's what defiles a man. Verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, violence, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. You see, you and I, we've got a problem down deeper than our hands and washing our hands. Our problem, Jesus said, and he points it out in such a vivid way, is what comes from the heart. Join us again next time as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Scott will bring a message titled, The Things Which Defile the Man. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.